Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host for White House Chronicle. I have always thought that the American Constitution is one of the truly great documents up there with the King James Version of the Bible and maybe Shakespeare. And it has endured quite remarkably well. During the troubles in Ireland, I was invited to talk with some of the people from the Irish Republican Army, actually, and they were worried about a future constitution. And I said, whatever you do, you better put it on a high shelf where you can't take it down again. Because if the American constitution had been uh, modified as often as people wanted more than 2000 times, it would be unrecognizable. Anyway, I'm so delighted to be joined today by a great expert on the constitution who is in fact an Australian lawyer and he comes to us from Australia. He is James Phillips, and he has written a book, Two Revolutions and the Constitution, how the English and American revolutions produce the American Constitution. I'm joined as often by the producer of the show, Linda Gasparello. Welcome to the broadcast, James. And how does a lawyer in Sydney, Australia, come to write a book about the American Constitution. Well, thank you so much for having me, Llewellyn. Uh, it goes like this. I very much wanted to um, pay, uh, play some role, if I could, in helping to tell an important historical story. And with my knowledge and skills as a lawyer, and also coming from Australia, whose constitution is in some ways really a synthesis of the uh, British and American constitutions. I've always had a great interest in the origins of the American constitution. And uh, I had a view that the story of the constitution's origins and how it came about often focused almost exclusively on the revolutionary period and the constitutional convention. Whereas it was really important, in my view, to set those events in context. Why did uh, the colonial Americans have the political values and expectations and perception of the rights that they did. To do that, you need to go back a bit further into American colonial history and the English revolutionary century of the 1600s, in my opinion. So that's what my book does. Now, you talk about the uh, English Constitution, which, of course, is not written down. You can't find it. It's not in a volume. And... Sometimes I wonder whether it really exists, although it is a force in English jurisprudence and in the conduct of their country's policies. Yes, well, that's right. So, you know, up, up, up until the early 18th century, it's the, it's the English constitution, and then, of course, it became the British constitution. And it is very unusual because the, uh, the, that constitution is really the um, practices, the conventions, some key legislation and um, some commentary is very important in interpreting all of that. But as you say, it's not written in a single document. And that means that you can have um, you know, room for uncertainty about how it works. It is probably anchored though, in the concept more or less of parliamentary um, supremacy, which in some ways actually makes the, the, English, the British constitution pretty simple. That's very interesting. I was a advised in my use of the word English uh, rather than British, in that there are substantial different differences in 
the Scottish attitude to the Constitution. And indeed, Scotland has a wholly separate legal system under that Constitution. And that's why I said the English Constitution rather than the British Constitution. Overall, uh, how well do constitutions work? It seems that some countries are forever rewriting theirs without much effect. And what makes the American one, the written constitution, uh, remarkable is that it has been so durable and has survived even a civil war. Yes, well, that's a very good question. And the answer to it is it depends quite a lot. It varies quite a lot. One of the classic constitutions worth reading is the 1935 Soviet constitution, which described more or less a democratic utopia. And that constitution existed at the same time as Stalin was in the process of murdering many of his own people and sending them off to the gulag and so on. And of course, there was no democracy whatsoever. Uh, so that's a, a stark example of a, a constitution which was um, presumably written for what are sometimes called the useful idiots in the West who believed that, in fact, Stalin was building a communist utopia rather than a sort of a, an oppressive sort of slave state. Um, uh, so the, the answer to the question is a constitution by itself, I guess, won't achieve what the constitution um, says it will achieve. You need a political culture and institutions which will support it. And that means in particular, I suppose, that the political class needs to be engaged with and support the constitution. Otherwise, the mere words on the page uh, won't save it. That's very interesting, uh, the difference between the practice under the constitution and the ideals of the constitution. In the US, we leave the constitution largely up to lawyers to tell us what it means. And different people think it, think it means very different things on particular issues. The Second Amendment, gun control, is first and foremost among those interpretations that are highly disputed, but are nonetheless part of the Constitution and referred to with enormous frequency in political discussion. How do you, how do you see the American Constitution working? Is it working well? Well, America is clearly going through something of a um, uh, what a, um, a, a political um, and cultural crisis, let's say. Uh, well, that would be my perspective. It's all right, you can say anything you like. You don't know where you live. <laughs> it's uh, it's clearly um, very polarized, and we have um, you know unusual characters being elected as as president and the like. So, uh, is that the fault of the Constitution? I don't think so. And at, the, at the end of the day, the Constitution. Is a, is a fairly mechanistic document. It sets up a framework and establishes some institutions. That's part of it. And then of course, the Bill of Rights um, establishes some, some, some rights. Uh, you know, it's best to think of it, I think, as, um, as a mechanism or a framework. And then what makes it real and, and dynamic and uh, makes it live on a day-to-day -day basis is the, um, what's happening in the country politically and culturally. And of course, as you allude to, uh, how it's interpreted by lawyers and the courts. So you have this mix of, a, of, a, of an established framework, and um, but because of those other factors, because of the uh, political and, and, and cultural context in which it's operating, it remains dynamic. Uh, Linda. 
James, can we go back to the time of English revolutions and their influence on the English constitution? It seems that it's an amorphous and a free-flowing and, and a, a changing constitution. What is the benefit of having that? And did the framers see that at all? They have a, our framers had a very rigid constitution in mind, but they must have incorporated aspects of the English constitution that they thought were worth to set in that framework, in that rigid framework. Oh, yes. So on the, on the subject of the, um, the English constitution in the 1600s and 1700s, what it was largely about, the, 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 the big theme, was uh, what at that time was largely actually the aristocracy taking powers away from the king. Um, and they did that by, you know, in, in enabling parliament and making, um, and so the parliament emerged from the second of the two revolutions of the 1600s. Um, parliament emerged really dominant and you have really the foundation of a constitutional monarchy emerging at that time. But of course, a lot of the power exercised through parliament, as I say, was not exercised by ordinary people. It was exercised principally by the aristocracy. So if you like, it's, it's about reducing the power of the king initially in favor of the aristocracy, but then increasingly over time in favor also of the emerging um, commercial, industrial, um, middle class and, and so on. And it's been, that was a continuum then for the next couple of hundred years, let's say, speaking James, roughly. James, but, I think we should tell the audience about the English revolutions. There was the English revolution, a large and messy affair, which ended up with the unseating of, of, uh, <clears throat> of Charles I, I think. And then the second one, the glorious revolution, which was the uh, perfect revolution because nobody got hurt. And uh, J James II was unseated in favor of William of Orange, which was both of these revolutions were at their heart over religious issues, not political issues, weren't they? Um, substantially, although um, as often, one thing that Marx got right, I, I guess, was the importance of uh, economics and economically determined classes in this process. So, so I'll try to do that in, in um, very briefly, because I agree that would be helpful. And, and then I'll um, return to Linda's question. The, uh, so in 1649, you have a really remarkable event. You have uh, King Charles I being put on trial, found guilty, and executed. And he's, that happens at the behest of what's called the Rump Parliament, a reduced um, parliament because a number of members of parliament didn't want to be associated with all this. But this is very remarkable. And the, uh, the international jurist human rights lawyer, Jeffrey Robertson has argued that this is actually uh, the beginning of the law that blossomed in the late 20th and early 21st century, and perhaps at Nuremberg too, of holding leaders to account for crimes against their own people. So uh, an epochal event. And just to touch on Linda's question, you know, the charges against Charles I in 1649 are actually partly mirrored in the Declaration of Independence. Thomas Jefferson must have had a copy of it there because uh, he, he charged, he charged um, George III with uh, tyranny 
and then articulated challenges, charges against him in the same sort of way as the English had charged, charged Charles I with tyranny back in 1649. This establishes the English Republic, which no one's ever heard of because of course, subsequent British monarchs wanted to suppress the fact that there was an English Republic. But there was an English Republic for 12 years. And importantly, it had a lot to do with, uh, it was very important in, in uh, relations between England and its American colonies. Sorry, Linda. So Charles III's uh, execution uh, might have been mirrored in, say, what the, what the framers were thinking about with the impeachment process. Could, would yeah, you say the, the relation? Well, the impeachment process is, is if, if you like, um, the, you could say that the, ex, the trial and execution of Charles I is an extreme version of impeachment. Impeachment was already um, an established um, uh, you know, a thing under the English constitution. And you're right, it's one of the many things that the American constitution and American practices inherited from, from um, England. And, and just to touch on your earlier point, you know, uh, the importance of the influence of, of the English constitution and English practice is just enormous, which is one of the points of the book. And the book doesn't in any way seek to belittle the achievement of the framers, which was epochal, right, to establish this vast federal republic on a new principle of sovereignty of the people and so on. So, but, um, you know, the question was constantly asked at the Constitutional Convention at Philadelphia in 1787 uh, about how the English constitution or the British constitution as it then was treated this issue, how was it dealt with? And the courts, the common law, um, the whole system of law and government largely continued as uh, after the revolutionary period, but you know, with modifications, all that was inherited from England and, and impeachment's an example of that. In, in preparing to write this book, did you consult a lot of constitutions and did you come to any conclusions about parliamentary democracy as opposed to presidential democracy, et cetera? Well, that's a very important question. And it's a very interesting one from an Australian perspective. There's nothing in the book about Australia, actually, other than one footnote about the dismissal of one prime minister. So I don't want to imply that it's um, heavily influenced. It's just that I have a particular perspective, I guess. And the Australian constitution is largely the framework of the American constitution with uh, the parliamentary system grafted onto it, right? Um, and it's, it's curious. So we have less of a separation of uh, powers than, than America. And you know that um, it, um, Madison in particular was an advocate of deliberately creating uh, tension and, and friction in the American constitution as a way of avoiding any one interest, either geographical interest, social interest, religious interest, economic interest from dominating the country. And by going for a separately elected president, I guess Americans were achieving two things. One, they were, make, they were emphasizing the, the novelty and difference from the English system where their governors had been appointed by, uh, had been appointed and not elected. So they were making it more democratic. But two, they were actually setting up a system which would intentionally create tension between Congress and the president in a way that doesn't happen under a parliamentary system because under a parliamentary system, it's the parliament 
that determines who the prime minister, who's the equivalent of the president, uh, is. And if the parliament isn't happy with the prime minister, the parliament can sack them. Linda? Um, on the topic, James, of separation of powers, wouldn't you say that the separation of powers these days in the United States is, we're seeing that less and less of it, that in the Constitution, the president is not supposed to make law, just execute law, for instance, the Congress makes the law, but we find with executive orders, the president is making law all the time, basically because we've got a Congress that isn't making these laws. Um, so how about the question of the separation of powers? Uh, do you see a huge reduction of that in the United States? Well, you're right. The, the re current reliance on executive orders is in some ways a circumvention of the, circum of the separation of powers. That's, that's true. Uh, the separation is broadly still very much more, but in that way, it's been very much still alive. But in that way, it's, it's been um, corroded a bit, I would say. But, you know, this whole question of how much tension between the president and Congress is a, is a good thing to avoid either of them becoming tyrannous, and how much is it a bad thing, because it means that nothing can get done. And that's, um, that's I guess, a, a very much a living issue. I I'm want to go back to the parliamentary as opposed to presidential. What I've seen in the parliamentary system is it works fairly well in a country like Britain, fairly homogeneous, and less well when you get huge stresses in the society, massive differences. And I'm not talking about, say, the British difference between left and right, the way you might get ethnic differences or religious differences, um, where you have a simple majority of one vote deciding a lot. When the British, for example, pulled out of Africa, which I know quite a bit about because that was my heritage, um, they left these little Westminsters, these beautiful little parliaments, complete with beautiful little constitutions. And uh, of course, the incoming, often the, the former terrorists or freedom fighters, depending on your point of view, uh, realized that with just one vote, they could vote themselves in, in perpetuity and did so. And it has not been a great success, democracy in Africa. Uh, I've always thought there was some strength in the American system. And once I was in Ireland and, uh, and my host said, uh, I, I'm not going to be here tomorrow. I need to take my sister to Washington. And I said, why are you going to do that? And this was during the troubles. And he said, because I want her to see the Congress working. Uh, it is the only system that might work in Ireland where minorities are protected and have a voice. And I thought that was very persuasive. Although today with the absolute uh, party control that we're seeing, particularly on the conservative side of, of Congress, um, it would seem that we've lost the advantages of the, of the uh, presidential system and we're operating more like a parliamentary system. Uh, do you have thoughts on that? Yes. So the possibility of what's sometimes called um, um, mob mob rule or majoritarian rule uh, oppressing the minority is always present in a democracy. As you say, in a, a parliamentary system, if the uh, constitution works in such a way that 
the um, parliament can pass a law that in effect suspends itself and empowers the, 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 the prime minister to uh, continue to rule as an executive, which wouldn't happen in, for example, Australia, because we do have a written constitution based, as I said, substantially on the American constitution, but with parliamentary sort of infusion, uh, then that's an extreme example of this risk. Now, it's very interesting, you know, the first session of the Constitutional Convention at Philadelphia in 1787, Governor Randolph from Virginia stands up and he talks about the danger of mob rule. And of course, we all know that the, you know, some leading Virginians, Virginia was the leading uh, colony at the time and some leading Virginians had a great influence at the convention. So they were very concerned about this issue of the possibility of uh, oppressive rule by the majority or, or even in, in an extreme case, that majority then in effect suspending the legislature and, and empowering an, an executive which could continue. So they deliberately designed a system where that was difficult. And that was part of the checks and balances. And I agree with you, it's one of the great strengths. Linda. Do you think, James, that uh, this effort that this, some states, 15 states are advancing now to have a constitutional convention is a good idea for this time? After all, Thomas Jefferson did say, I think once that it wasn't a bad idea to stir things up politically. Well, um, it's true that the, the um, uh, you know, a number of the framers made, made comments to the uh, effect that they didn't know how long the constitution would last. Um, so it, because it, 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 it was a great innovation and a great experiment. Uh, and, and here we are, it, it's, it's still going. Um, look, in, in theory, you can take the view that it's always possible to optimize your system of government, particularly if you see um, that, you know, there's a lot of stress in the political system. Um, it's, it's a very difficult thing to achieve, partly because of those stresses. So would such an exercise like, likely be productive in practice? I'm not sure that it would. I mean, to me, my, my own view is that um, the political stresses we're seeing in America are largely a result of cultural stresses. And we, you know, there really is a deeply divided country not just on, on, on sort of economic issues or issues of political, which might, might once have been thought of being uh, political issues, but around ways of seeing the world in, a very, in very fundamental ways. And, and I doubt that a, uh, some attempt to revise the constitution could get past those deep divisions. That's quite interesting. I wanted to ask you about what has the constitution done to shape American attitudes to the world. For example, exceptionalism, American exceptionalism. Uh, a lot of countries think they're exceptional, but they don't say it, not in those words. It's peculiarly American, uh, I think, and I think it's an interesting way of looking at of people looking at themselves. What are your thoughts on American exceptionalism and how is it related, if at all, to the Constitution, James? Well, American exceptionalism is, um, is very interesting. I mean, America is exceptional. It, it was unique. Um, uh, I say it was unique. It's still unique. But 
but the nature of its constitution and its political institutions were unique. They've since been copied elsewhere. Um, uh, my own view is that the turbocharged version of uh, American exceptionalism has um, probably not been beneficial for America. For ex and, and I'll give two examples of that. One, I actually think that it's made it easy, easier for this um, really dark demonization of America and of its history and of its present that is going on in, in on at the part of the ideological spectrum in, in America now, and that is quite influential with young people. Uh, that in some ways, it's completely over the top and, and focuses almost only on the negatives and not on the positives, let's say. Um, but in some ways, it's an understandable response to exceptionalism, which did the opposite. It just focused on the positives and, and didn't look below the surface at some of the negative issues. So I think exceptionalism, it's a bit uh, fragile and brittle and has perhaps contributed to the current problems. And I think exceptionalism also has probably had um, caused problems for American foreign, foreign policy. I mean, this idea that you can go into um, countries with where there's no um, distribution of, of cultural or uh, economic power, no, no, no pluralism at all, very concentrated power structures, often tribal power structures, and introduced uh, democracy, uh, it, it's not going to work, right? Um, you can't just take the, the form of um, American democracy and transplant it to a completely different um, economic, cultural, social, historical context. But American exceptionalism seems to have encouraged some Americans to believe that that was possible. James, you clearly have a remarkable grasp, a very nuanced one of America, American political systems, the Constitution and things that flow from it. How does a transactional lawyer in Australia come to have this profound knowledge base? Well, you know, I had the good fortune to first read the American Constitution when I was at school and the Declaration of Independence. Um, you know, that was in a, I, I, was, I was very lucky, right? It was a time when, when there was still some attempt to teach real history and um, I was blessed with some great teachers and I found it fascinating. And of course, the prose is compelling. And you mentioned before, well, in the King James Bible, it's, um, you can see the, the declaratory prose of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, you know, because you know, many Protestants at that time were well-versed in the beautifully written um, and written to be read aloud King James Bible. So just as a, as a work almost of literature, these, these documents are, are remarkable, but they're also so inspiring in their vision. So I've um, been doing, um, you know, reading on the subject for, um, I don't know if I want to reveal my age to your audience, but for a very long time. And, um, and then I spent obviously a, an intense period of reading and research, particularly on the primary documents, uh, including the, the English primary documents, as well as all the American primary documents and, and, and the conventions and all that in preparing for the book. That is our show for today. We thank you all for coming along. And I'm going to pretend that I'm in Australia where it's summer and I could be going to the beach. But in truth, it's cold and wet and I'm not going anywhere near the beach. Until next week. Cheers. We are now available as a podcast. Search for White House Chronicle in Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite audio platform. And subscribe to never miss our weekly shows.